Hello, everybody. It's so great to get to be here with you with you this weekend. I am so excited to be here. Um, this is like a different weekend because my husband is actually out of town, which is the first time I've ever gotten to teach with him not here, which means I feel like free reign to say anything I want. So I'm gonna like bring all the good stories you've always wanted to hear about Judd. No, I'm just kidding, I won't do that. Um, we are continuing on today in our series, Rise Up. If you have not been here, I just wanna encourage you to hop online and watch the messages. They have been so amazing. But two weeks ago, we started to dive into the life of Ezra, learning how to rise up in our own lives. And Judd told us that we can rise up in God's favor, and we can also rise up in God's faithfulness. And then last week, he talked about the life of Nehemiah and talked about how we can rebuild with courage in our lives. And today, we're going to talk about walking with our heads held high. I was enjoying a nice little girl's trip in Southern California, and we were kind of driving around the back roads when we came across this fill, this like field full of longhorn cattle. Now, I am a Texas girl. We were raised in the part of Texas where you could smell the cows. And on a good windy day, you could really smell the cows in Amarillo, Texas. So I have seen a lot of cattle in my day. But I had never seen cows like this. These longhorns were meandering around these fields and they were dragging one of their horns in the dirt as they walked. And I thought, my goodness. I think they're sick. This entire herd of longhorn cattle is sick. So I asked a local person what was wrong with those cows. And he said, well, you know, their horns have just gotten so heavy that they're no longer able to walk with their heads up. In fact, eventually they will be so weighed down that they won't be able to lift their heads at all. And as soon as he said it, I thought, that has been me. I have walked with a posture just like that, weighed down in my life by hurts, disappointments, discouragement, dragging myself through the dirt, unable to walk with my head held high. I don't know if you can relate to that, but I think we all have seasons in our lives where it's just hard to rise up. And we meet a woman in Luke chapter 13, who is more than just walking with her head bent low, she's completely bent in half. So we turn to Luke 13 and starting in verse 10. And you know how we do it around Central. When you get to that red word, what are you gonna do? Scream it out at me, here we go. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, he saw a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. She had been what? bent. She had been bent double for 18 years, and she was unable to stand up straight. This woman, we don't even know her name. All we know is that she is the bent woman, not just hunched over, but completely bent in half for 18 years. For 18 years she suffered, for 18 years she lived in pain, for 18 years she walked bent. That's 216 months 
6,570 days of walking bent. And day after day she walked and she could see nothing more but the dirt in front of her. She could not embrace her family. She could not watch her children play. She could not make eye contact with her friends for 18 years. Can you imagine that kind of pain? I think we probably can, but maybe not physically. Maybe we can imagine that emotionally. See, she was a hostage spiritually before she was a hostage physically. And she didn't just have a physical problem in her body, she had a spiritual problem. She was experiencing the physical manifestation of her spiritual situation. And while we may not have the physical manifestation of that kind of situation, we have certainly had the emotional manifestation of that. We have had the mental health manifestation of that kind of spiritual problem in our lives. Maybe you face criticism and it draws out your deepest insecurities and you become bent. Or your decisions are called into question and your fears rise up and you are bent. Your marriage is struggling and you're not connecting and you're not talking and it's not good and you feel bent. Your kids are making decisions that are breaking your heart or maybe they are just crumbling under the pressure of school and homework and sports and all that they have going on. And parents, we know that you are only as happy as your saddest child and you feel bent. Maybe your finances are a mess right now and you don't know how you're gonna pay the bills and you feel bent. So what do we do when we feel bent? What do we do when we are walking along with a posture like this? How can we walk with our heads held high? Well, I think we're gonna talk about three things today. And the first is we've got to get unbent from doubt. We've got to get unbent from doubt. I stress fractured my right foot while I was pretending to be a prima ballerina when I saw my friend in toe shoes. Didn't work out well for me. I stress fractured my left foot when I was running backstage here on a baby dedication weekend because Judd was waiting for me on this platform and I was running late. I fractured my kneecap when I thought I was a better snow skier than I actually am. I fractured my ankle when I fell down a hill on a mission trip in Mexico. I, let's see, I chipped my wrist and fractured my arm when I fell off this stage at this point right here. This side of the stage is now known as the place where Lori fell off, right here. I'm making this whole crowd very nervous right now. I tore this shoulder when I was training for a 5K because obviously when you go running, you tear your shoulder. And I spent six months in a neck brace because I was doing backflips on a trampoline. So I am a hot mess. From the tippy top to the bottom of my toes, I have been broken in lots of ways. So I am a well-documented faller. I fall all the time. So it should not be a surprise that we were out to dinner with our fabulous friends, Pastor Mike and Lisa, and we were outside waiting and this huge, and I mean ginormous mammoth-sized insect flew right by my face and landed on Pastor Mike's jacket. And Judd reached over 
and kind of shoot it away. And when it flew away, it left like, I mean, like an insect secretion. <laughs> a little insect excrement, if you will, on Mike's jacket. And because I am his friend and I did not want his jacket ruined, I stepped forward and used my hand to wipe it off and remove it because that's how nice I am. And as I stepped back, my ankle twisted and just like that, I was on my backside. And I was a little embarrassed and a little hurt, but I hopped up really fast and I was like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And I faked fine really well that night. But the next morning, I thought for sure I was gonna be in all kinds of pain. So I'm checking myself out that morning and I said, Chud, I don't think I fell as hard as I thought. I mean, I thought it would be like super sore. I thought it would be bruised. It must not have been like that bad of a fall. And he goes, oh babe, oh no, I saw your thighs jiggle. <laughs> and then I was like, we're about to have a fight. And so, <laughs> self-doubt can come out of nowhere. We can just be going about our normal lives and then one twist of a situation, one comment, one thing that flies by our lives and we can find ourselves on our backsides surrounded by self-doubt. What do we do then? You know, it, one of the things that uh, really creates self-doubt in our lives is comparison. And it just starts so simple. It just is like a little internal whisper that says, I wonder if I'm good enough. Am I good enough in my parenting? Am I good enough in our marriage? Am I good enough at work? I just don't know if I'm good enough. And then that just keeps growing and it grows. And we say, I just don't know if I have what it takes. I don't know if I'm talented enough or gifted enough or smart enough or together enough or young enough, old enough, equipped enough. I just don't know if I'm enough. And we find ourselves sprawled out in self-doubt. And we can no longer walk with our heads held high. You look around at the other men and the women in your lives, your coworkers, your families, your friends, and you can't help but compare yourself. Maybe their lives seem so together and you know your life is a mess. They seem so sure of themselves, so successful, and you know how your weaknesses and all the things that you regret. You measure their strengths and their accomplishments against all of your weaknesses and all of your failures, and doubt weighs us down. It makes us bent. And none of us are immune to comparison and it doesn't take much of an effort to start comparing because all we need to do is open our phones and open social media and it's right before us. We see people and they are celebrating amazing things. Maybe their marriage looks like it has no troubles whatsoever. They never fight. Their children eat all of their vegetables. And then you know what your marriage is like. You know your kids only eat Pop-Tarts and then what do you do when you start to compare? But comparison is the thief of joy and the robber of contentment. It steals our joy and robs us of our contentment because we only see the highlight reels of someone else's life and we compare it to our very lengthy list of weaknesses and our failures. 
And we don't know what those other people have had to go through, what they've had to persevere, how hard they've had to hustle, what they've had to endure to be where they are now, but we compare ourselves anyway. That comparison makes us bent. So let's look back at that story of the bent woman. Here's what it says in verse 11. It says, when Jesus, what? When Jesus saw her, he called her over. There were so many people that Jesus healed that he did not have to see. There was the woman who laid herself on the ground in the middle of a crowd and touched the hem of Jesus' robe and got healed. There were people that he healed over long distances. He raised Lazarus from the dead who was buried in a tomb. He didn't need to see anyone. So I think it's important that the Bible tells us that he saw her in the synagogue full of people. I wonder how many times she had been overlooked or looked down on, but Jesus saw her and he sees you too. He sees you, he notices you, you are his focus, you have his attention. When you realize that Jesus sees you, you walk in more than your present, you walk in your potential. Because Jesus didn't just see her present, he saw her potential. And the way Jesus sees us is so much more important than the way our family sees us. It's so much more important than the way our friends and our coworkers see us. The way Jesus sees us can make an incredible impact on our lives. And here's how Jesus sees you. You are chosen, you are qualified, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. He is equipped, gifted, purposed you for great things. You are accepted. He is preparing within you what he has prepared for you. You are forgiven, you are an overcomer, you are saved by his grace, you are never alone, you are unconditionally loved and eternally bound to God. You have what it takes and you are more than enough. You're redeemed, your former shame has no power in your present, you are wonderful, you are strong, and God has armed you with the power to get through any obstacles you face. That is how God sees you. So, shoulders back, chin up. We're gonna walk with our heads held high. All right, the second thing we wanna become unbent from is disappointment. We wanna become unbent from disappointment. Life is filled with disappointment because people are sometimes disappointing. And this football season at the Wilhite House has been filled with disappointment. In fact, the last decade of football at my house has been filled with disappointment. Every Sunday, I pretty much know the kind of husband I'm going to have Sunday afternoon. It's gonna be the sad, disappointed one. And so we were toward the end of the season, something like crazy happened. My husband, our pastor, lifelong Dallas Cowboys football fan, started rooting for the Eagles while they were playing the Cowboys. I was concerned for his health. I thought maybe he hit his head, has something happened? And I said, honey, I, I, 
I don't even know what to do with this moment. You just, they scored, you're so happy, it's crazy. And he said, babe, if the Cowboys don't lose, then we're never gonna get rid of that coach. <laughs> and so our season was amazingly redeemed by the losing Cowboys because now he has a new coach. So maybe next year won't be quite so disappointing. So we all have disappointments that go on in our lives. Lots of disappointments that are way uh, more hurtful than a losing football team. You know, I've had some of my greatest hurts and my greatest disappointments hand delivered to me by the people in my life, and I bet you have too. This weekend, uh, we honor Dr. King, son of a Baptist pastor, civil rights leader, advocate of nonviolence, a brilliant orator, activist, minister, leader, Nobel Prize winner, inspiration to the world, a shining example of a powerful life that can make a difference. And while his work was so encouraging and inspiring to so many people, it was also fraught with personal disappointment. One of his greatest bits of disappointment in his years of uh, activism and ministry were the fact that the white pastors of his time did not stand with him. The men who were his brothers in the faith, who should have stood beside him, who should have joined their voices with him, who should have rallied with him for this cause did not. And he was so disappointed, and he was disappointed, but he pushed on. He was hurt, but he didn't quit. Disappointed, but he continued to walk with his head held high. So I'm so thankful that at Central we have a pastor and a staff and a whole church family that stands with people, that we stand together. No matter your age, no matter your race, socioeconomic status, no matter what you've been through or what you're going to go through, our church is committed to stand together. And we do not always get it right because we're not perfect, I'm not perfect, you're not perfect either. As often as I'm disappointed by others, I know I have also disappointed others because I've messed it up too. So we all have those disappointments in our lives. It's not if they're going to happen, it's when. And when they do, are we going to allow them to make us bent or are we going to keep going? Are we going to push on and are we going to walk with our heads held high anyway? You see that bent woman had a problem of health and a problem of habit. You see that skeletal condition that she had, it wasn't as simple as just trying to straighten up or to have better posture or to just get a little stronger. In fact, that would have been incredibly painful for her to try to straighten up. The only relief she could have from her pain was to sink down further still. And so often in our lives, we can be so hurt or so disappointed or have so much pain and the only relief we can get is to sink in further still. We have become addicted to that pain. We feel wrapped up in our disappointment and we don't want to let it go. And instead of allowing God to come along and straighten us up, 
we sink in further. I got an email from a lady this summer and she had been at the conference that I host the year before and we had had a great conference, God had done like crazy, amazing, wonderful things but she wrote me this letter to tell me how furious she was and I, I read the letter and she had been so hurt by someone in their office, so wounded and she was right, they were wrong, they were wrong but she was so disappointed and so angry because in that conference time, God had given her an opportunity to let go of that disappointment, to move forward in forgiveness and to start to straighten up and walk tall. And she just sunk further in. And a year later, she had left their church. She had quit her job and she had completely isolated in her pain. She just sunk down further. It's a temptation that we all have. We can be so used to being bent, we can be bent so long that we don't even remember how to stand up. But this is what happens with the bent woman. In Luke 13, 12, it says, when Jesus saw her, he what? He called her over and said, dear woman, you are healed of your sickness. Okay, Jesus, who can stand up straight and who can actually walk, he's the one that called the bent woman who cannot stand up straight to walk over to him. Isn't that interesting? Jesus didn't need to have her close to be able to heal her. He could have healed her long distance style. Like, I see you, you need my help, you're healed. And he would have never even had to have her move. So why did he have a woman bent for 18 years in so much pain come over to him? I think it's because he knew she needed to take a step. Just a single step that says, Jesus, I'm done with the pain. One step that says, I'm gonna trust you even though it hurts. One step that says, I'm gonna follow you even though it's painful. Just a single step toward healing. And I don't know about you, but some of us need a change of location. We need to take a step in our hearts. We need to take a step in our lives toward Jesus so that we can get healed. He doesn't need us to walk to him. We need to walk to him. We need to take a step so that we can say, I'm done with the pain. I'm done with the hurt. I'm done with the disappointment. Help me walk with my head held high. So shoulders back, chin up. Let's walk with our heads held high. The last thing is that we can be unbent from discouragement. Be unbent from discouragement. You see, the enemy doesn't wanna just put you in bondage. He wants to keep you there. He didn't just put this woman in bondage for 18 minutes. He had her in bondage for 18 years. The tactics of the enemy are so tricky because he wants to keep you in bondage. He wants to prohibit the impact you can make and he wants to steal your courage and shut down the opportunities you have to make a difference in the world, not for a minute, but for years. And we can get so 
bent by discouragement, but the way we can stand tall is worship. Uh, when I wrote this book, I wrote just before, this was actually about two or three weeks before Emma graduated from high school. Just last week, we took Emma back to college um, and got her dropped off to start her second semester of school. And I was just struck by the thought of how different it was from the last time we took her to college. And so this is what I wrote a few weeks before she graduated from high school. We opened up the wooden blinds of her window to let the sunlight stream in to wake up Emma. Taking a deep breath, we launched into a rousing rendition of an old Broadway classic, I'll Save You From My Singing, but oh, what a beautiful morning, oh, what a beautiful day, I've got a beautiful feeling, everything's going my way, and everything was going her way because it was Emma's first day of kindergarten, and she ate her breakfast, and she combed her hair and brushed her teeth, and she could hardly hold in her excitement. And she put on her little uniform with her little white t-shirt with puff sleeves, a khaki skirt, and her light-up princess tennis shoes. And we buckled her in her booster seat in our car, and we headed to her new school. Standing on that kindergarten playground with the rest of the parents, I looked around to see how my emotions were holding up compared to everybody else's. Some parents smiled and looked relieved to be sending their little darlings off to school. Let's be honest, that happens. Other moms had tears like streaming down their face at the prospect of having to share just like a portion of their kid's day with some woman they've never met. And I felt like I was doing pretty well. I stood and I watched Emma meet new friends on the playground and running around the jungle gym, eyes dry, emotions strong, heart whole. What was wrong with those other weird parents? And at the sound of the whistle, the kindergarten teacher had everybody line up to enter the classroom and start her first day. My toddler on my hip, I squeezed Judd's hand, and we watched Emma follow the line into the school building. And at the very last moment, her teacher said, hey, kids, turn around and say goodbye to your parents. And what felt like a slow motion scene in a movie, Emma turned around and smiled and blew us a kiss. And the floodgates opened. <laughs> I completely lost it. My baby was in kindergarten. And then we blinked. And now we're staring down the moment where we take our little girl to her first day of college. <sighs> See, it still makes me sad. As we feed her breakfast, she'll comb her hair and brush her teeth while hardly being able to contain her nervousness and her excitement. She'll throw on a concert t-shirt and her skinny ripped jeans and her sneakers and we'll buckle her in her car seat. Not her car seat, that's a lie. She'll buckle herself in. She'll be surrounded with everything she needs to outfit her dorm room and we'll take off on the five-hour trip to her new school in a new state. And standing on campus with the rest of the parents, I imagine I'll look around and see how my emotions are holding up compared to everybody else's. Some parents will be smiling, both proud of their kids' accomplishments and excited to have a little more quiet at their house. Other moms will have tears streaming down their faces at the prospect of having to share their children with so many strangers and the realization that Thanksgiving break is so far away. And me, I will not be doing good. My husband is going to have to peel me off of the floor while I will be laying on the ground with my arms locked around her ankles, eyes smudged with running mascara, emotions swirling, heartbroken. And she'll walk us to our car and we'll do our signature smooch that we do which is a Hollywood kiss on each cheek and an Eskimo kiss. 
and we'll watch her walk back to the dorm and what will feel like a slow motion scene in a movie, she will turn around, blow us a kiss, because that is what she does. And Judd and I will be faced with a very long, very silent five-hour drive back home. Not because we're not incredibly proud of her, but because she cannot be replaced in our home. And that heartbreak that I felt in that season was intense. I spent so much time fretting and had so much fear um, and a worry. And to be honest with you, I did not want her to go. In fact, the summer before Emma graduated, we started praying every single day at 1.25 p.m. because her birthday is January 25th. And every day at 1.25, we started praying for God's direction, for his guidance. I was praying that he would change her mind and make her want to stay with me because I had plans. I was like, she can live here. She can still be part of Central. This is going to be amazing. God's gonna change her mind. And over the months, God did not change Emma's mind, but he did change mine and made it so obvious to me that he had something else for her. And so we had to learn to worship him in the midst of our heartache. And when we showed up to school to drop Emma off, um, I was freaking out. I was freaking out. I was so uh, scared. We had dropped her name in the roommate lottery and we all know there's about a thousand things that can go wrong with that. And then she got assigned a roommate, Haley from San Jose, and that's all we knew. They texted a couple of times, and we walked into that dorm room, fingers crossed, hoping they could at least learn to coexist with each other. And when we were walking down the hallway, I saw a mom walk out of Emma's room, and I said, Emma, I bet that's Haley's mom. And she turned, and she looked at me, and she goes, she gasped, and she said, oh my gosh, I recognize you. I just finished your study at my church. Come on, Jesus. And so we, two moms who are gonna have to have God pry our fingers off of our daughters, cried in the hallway together because God was working in the midst of our heartache. A few days after they met, here's a picture of Emma and Haley. Oh, those girls. God has knit them together so tightly. They do so much more than coexist. They are like buddies. We call Haley our surrogate daughter. She calls us her second mom and dad. And she's amazing. And she is the answer to months and months and months of prayers. Because God was working in the midst of our heartbreak. When we have heartbreak in our lives, God is still working in the midst of it. He is still moving. We may not see it. We may not even know it's happening, but we can learn to worship in the midst of our hurt because we can be confident knowing God is working in the midst of it. And when we look at that bent woman, uh, God was working in her midst too. Here's what it says. I'm gonna bring it up on the screen, guys. Here's what it says. Then he touched her and instantly she could stand straight and how she what? How she praised God. 
how she praised God. And here's what's awesome, beautiful, love it. It's great that she praised him once she was healed. But guess what? She was already praising him in the midst because Jesus found her in the synagogue. He found her in church, a woman who had been in pain for 18 years, a woman who had been 18 years worshiping God in the midst. We gotta learn if we want to become unbent from our discouragement, unbent from our disappointment, unbent from our doubt, to praise God, to worship him, even in the midst. So shoulders back, chin up. It's time to walk with our heads held high. We weren't meant to walk with our heads bent low. Leviticus 26, 13 says, I am the Lord your God. I broke the yoke of slavery from your neck so you can walk with your heads held high. God rescued us from the slavery of our sin, released us from the captivity of our pain and redeemed us from death so we could walk with our heads held high. So are we going to do that or are we going to stay bent? Galatians 5.1 declares, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So what? Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And this is what the message translation says. Christ has set us free to live a free life. So take your stand. Never again let anyone put the harness of slavery on you. You were not meant to be under that burden any longer. We are not meant to walk through our lives bent by doubt and discouragement and disappointment. We're meant to walk the free life, to take our stand, to put our chins up and to walk with our heads held high. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take a moment just to identify some of the things that have been holding us down. Some of the things that have been weighing us down and causing us to be bent. And if you're ready to break free from that, then I just want you to stand. If you're done being bent by self-doubt and insecurity, stand up. If you no longer want to be held down by disappointment or discouragement, stand up. If you don't want to let fear, anxiety, and worry weigh you down any more, then stand up. If you don't want to be bound by the feeling like you're just living in somebody else's shadow, then stand up because it's time to walk with our heads held high. If you're tired of second guessing your calling, stand up. If you're ready to be unbent from worrying about what everybody else thinks of you, stand up. And if you no longer wanna be held down by not feeling good enough, stand up. Central family, shoulders back, chin up. It's time we walk with our heads held high. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you for seeing us. Thank you for calling us over to you. Thank you for reaching out and touching us and healing us and helping us to become unbent from all the things that life throws at us. Thank you for calling us to you, God. 
I pray that as we go into this next week, into the next month, that you will continue the healing work in our lives, helping us to stand up straight, helping us to rise up and take courage in our lives. It is for freedom that we have been set free. God, please don't let us forget that. We love you so much and we are so thankful. It's in Jesus' name, amen.